This podcast represents the opinions of Katie Allen, PA, and guests of her show. The content is for informational purposes only and in no way sets up a patient relationship. Consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Now, here's Katie Allen. Jay Andrews, as always, that is a spectacular introduction. I ain't gonna lie, makes you feel a little special. It's said that the eyes are the window to the soul. However, it's not really gonna matter what you can see through those eyes if you can't really see the eyes at all. So today we're gonna talk about the tissue that's above the eye area and what we can do to improve this so that you can see the eyes more clearly. Does make me pretty. Tomboy Turn Plastic Surgery PA, and it's a podcast presented by your host, me, Katie Allen, who's been a PA in plastic surgery for over 15 years. Thank you so much for joining me today to listen and I appreciate all of you that have invited friends I'm seeing as our numbers grow and that allows me to continue doing this let me know those things that it gives me a lot of energy and hopefully I can bring that energy back full circle to you through treatments if I'm actually treating you in my office or even just through information that I'm able to give back to you my goal is to help you be able to sort through tips tricks and techniques that are most valuable to you whether that affects us visually or physically or a little bit of both are you gradually over time looking tired mad mean, intense, angry, aging, grumpy, Neanderthal-like. Well, that could be for a lot of different reasons, but what we're going to discuss today is whether or not it's your brow being heavy, or we're going to talk about whether or not it's the eyelid being heavy. And that really is going to be for a professional to decide, but I'm going to try to help guide you with information so that you can have a good discussion with somebody else, or you can just kind of start to evaluate yourself and say, you know what, I'm seeing that now, and that is bothering me enough to do something about it. Just because something is a problem, obviously it does not mean you need to do something. So I am no way trying to body shame. This is more about me giving you information so that you are able to have the tools that if you'd like to go forward with any kind of a procedure, you now have some educational tips to just give you a baseline. Not enough to tell you what to do. Again, you're going to have to visit with a board certified plastic surgeon to see what is the best thing for you to do. So heavy brows and lids or a combination of both doesn't just affect us visually, meaning it doesn't sometimes just make us look a little worse, but sometimes it also has a actual physical impact on our vision. And in the past, we see a lot more that insurance companies would sometimes pay for the upper lids to have some skin removed so that people were able to see better. That's called an upper lid blepharoplasty. We'll go into that in a little bit. But now insurance companies are really getting resistant to wanting to do that. And so we're seeing that that's less of a option at this point. Brow lifts have rarely, if ever, been covered by insurance companies. So it is really thought to be more of a cosmetic feature. Cosmetic can refer to the fact that we are focusing on something that is not functional and that it is strictly a visual change to improve an area. But in our case, sometimes cosmetic also just means that it's cash pay. But in my opinion, for the right person is completely worth it. But you've got to decide that for your own self. So when we assess faces, it's a little bit of actually a mathematical equation in a whole lot of different directions. And each person is different. And there's definitely differences in evaluation and goals of men versus women. So why do we get heaviness of the brow or of the eyelids? Well, (laughs) the answer is like most things. Primarily, it's based on genetics. There are definitely some factors that we can control. As we age, the skin loses elasticity, as we've talked about in other areas of the face or the body, and can give us kind of a heavy appearance. Also, you can have more of a prominent brow bone. A prominent brow bone really offers a ridge of protection from objects hitting this area. And in the past, at least, and psychologically, has been thought to look like a warrior 
chubbier. <laughs> Matches kind of the square jaw appearance. So more of a masculine feature. So if you see this more in females, well, ladies, if you're looking for a more feminine appearance, this might be detracting from that to make us look more severe, intense. Not as fun. But when it comes to males, this is not necessarily seen as a downside. As we age, we also lose volume around the eyes and in the tissues that surround the eyes, even up to the forehead, which does secondarily have a domino effect down onto other structures such as the lids and the brow. We also lose collagen elastin, as we've spoken about. This can cause laxity in the skin, which can make things overall more droopy. Boo. So why does any of this matter? Well, if it doesn't matter to you, then it doesn't matter. Unless it's physically affecting your vision, then this goes back to a cosmetic evaluation and cosmetic treatment choices that are fairly low risk in the hands of a board certified plastic surgeon. But why in our society alone does cosmetic appearance matter? Well, it's not just in our society alone. I can tell you things that may benefit you physically and may help your appearance, but if it's not bothering you, then we're not going to discuss it because it doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you. Overall, our appearance is known to affect a lot of what we do. It can affect our careers. It can affect how we view ourselves. It can affect how other people view us. We assess people based on really limited information when we don't know them. Unless somebody's given us a character rundown of an individual, a background story, or we've gathered information through a bio, or God forbid we gather information from Instagram or Facebook because you know that might not be reliable. We're using physical appearance to gain quick social information. And then that information is used by our brain to respond to individuals, to decide if we're going to trust individuals. Our brain might interpret the intelligence of an individual, their reputability, their integrity, and whether or not we want to see them again or invest any more of ourselves in them. Like we may not want to admit that, but that is really what our brain is processing as quickly as it can. In a wartime setting, that might be whether or not we think this is our friend or our foe. And we can see this in business as well, whether or not we might want to invest further in this individual to explore whether or not they might be an asset to our team or whether or not we think they might get in the way. Do we think they're a bad apple just because they have a severe expression? Hopefully we would go ahead and investigate farther into who the individual actually is. But these are, again, quick assessments that our brain does. So on that evaluation, your brows are a defining feature of the face. If the brows sag beneath the brow bone and they're wrinkled and furrowed, you quite frankly might just look like you're pissed off and pretty much just no fun. None of which matters unless it bothers you. So are there any non-surgical options that we can do? Well, it depends on the severity as to if we have any non-surgical options. Botox is something that we talked about on prior episodes with Make Me Pretty podcast, which is what you're listening to right now. But what I can tell you about Botox is that Botox can give you a little bit of a lift to the brow in a less severe circumstance. But once we're getting to a significant heavy brow, I find that trying to get too much of a lift out of the Botox just ends up looking strange, crazy, alien-like, like a character. I can tell you, if you've come into my office or you have spoken to me through a telehealth conference, through a telehealth visit, that I do not like to use Botox to lift a brow so severely that you look strange. It makes me look bad and it makes you look bad also. There are some things that I will compromise, but this is not one of them. You'll need to visit with someone else if you would like a lateral brow lift and a medial drop in the middle, which allows those other muscles to kick in a little bit farther. When we are dealing with small brow lifting with Botox, yes, I would love to treat you or have some of my colleagues out there treat you. But if gravity takes a significant toll enough, then that is not an option. And we must look at surgical choices really to give you more of a natural appearance. Typically, if you're looking tired, we might be looking at the brow area, but really we're trying to assess the difference between whether or not it is the upper brow that is heavy or whether or not it is the upper lid tissue that is heavy over the eye. 
why. And sometimes it's a combination of both. So let's focus on the upper lid tissue because I see this males and females pretty much equally. The upper lid tissue of the eye is what covers the eye when we're blinking. That's what we want to happen. But sometimes we can get an excess fold of skin that comes over the top of that actual natural tissue and can start to just feel heavy, quite frankly, which even when we're younger, it will start to feel heavy once we are getting tired, maybe in a typical day when we're youthful, it's starting to happen around nine or 10 o'clock. But now if that is just happening because we're losing elasticity to the skin and now we're getting a folding over of that tissue, it can almost add to the feeling of being tired, which never is a good thing. There are also a variety of conditions that I'm not really going to go over for the sake of this because I really want to focus on chesmesis. There are some times where folks are not able to raise the eyelid up. So it's not really a matter about it being too heavy over the eye, but instead it doesn't want to open back up. That's more of a functional issue. And we do address that as well in our office. The key is, is getting someone to address that who has experience as that is functional and quite frustrating for patients. But again, I'm going to move on from that at this time. So the eyelid tissue has stretched, the muscle supporting this area has weakened and the excess fat might be protruding, making someone look super tired and not very motivated, which is interpreted as, I don't know if you're with it enough to handle my business. <laughs> so in this case, somebody may need an upper lid blepharoplasty, which can be done under general anesthesia. Although I see that rarely these days, unless somebody is already asleep for something else, it can be done under a more significant sedation that involves an anesthesiologist, which is something I used to see more back in the day, especially when it had to do with insurance companies. But at least in our office, and I would assume that many offices are like this, it is more common that we do this under local anesthesia with PO sedation. And PO is just a fancy word for saying by mouth that we're having somebody visit with us at a visit prior. It is usually within a two-week period prior to their actual procedure where they sign consents and then we give them prescriptions for the actual procedure that typically in our office includes a Valium, which is an anti-anxiety, basically makes you care a whole lot less. And sometimes a Percocet is also given, which is a pain medication. We also give folks Bronox in our office, which is nitrous gas, like laughing gas. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and usually that's just given even during the administration of the actual numbing. And then after that, folks don't really feel much pain at all. It's it's more maybe a little discomfort, some pressure here or there, but we're talking to folks, making them feel comfortable. Again, we're real motivated to make it a real pleasant experience. I can say almost every single person, and this is multiples in a week, says at the end of it, oh, it's over. It's real nerve wracking coming into any procedure because we're human. So what I'm going to tell you is what it would look like in my office. And you'd have to ask your surgeon what it would look like in theirs. In our office, what it looked like, Valium and a Percocet about 30 minutes prior to the procedure, you would walk in with your driver. Then my physician would mark your eyelids, making sure to mark an adequate amount of tissue, but never, ever, ever too much. We have folks lie back onto our procedure table, and then we allow them to start inhaling Pronox, which is the nitrous gas, as they are injected with a 1% lidocaine with epinephrine local anesthetic. We then begin prepping the face, making sure to protect the eyes and be gentle in this area, which also allows time for the anesthetic to work as well as the epinephrine, which reduces bleeding to this area. Meanwhile, folks have been medicated with their Valium and Percocet and now are on the nitrous, so they will tolerate this quite well. And then our surgeon begins his portion of the procedure. So the marked area of skin is removed from the upper eyelid and some fat can be removed from the medial area of the upper eyelid, but there is always an assessment by the surgeon to decide if it is a good idea to remove fat to this area and how much should be removed as no one wants to remove too much, which could leave a skeletal appearance. In some cases, there is a small amount of the or 
orbicularis oculi, which is the muscle that closes the eyelid, is removed, but that is based on the individual. The remaining eyelid tissue is then closed, and in our office, our surgeon uses a proline suture, which is held down on each end with a little bit of mastosol and a steri-strip, and let me tell you, this thing slides out so well when we're bringing it out a week later. I've never seen any single patient in over 15 years of working with my surgeon that has been overdone. With this surgery and with the brow that I'll discuss in the future, we tell folks to hold off of any blood thinners such as ibuprofen or aspirin type products and supplements that may increase bruising to the area at least a week in advance and a week afterwards. Each individual may need specific instructions depending on their situation. So what are the contraindications when it comes to an upper lip blepharoplasty? What means you can't get this done? (laughs) Pretty much severe dry eye. Now I'll say many of us as we're aging, we get some dry eye and that can be from a variety of things, but we're really talking about some severe dry eye. Glaucoma is another contraindication in many cases, as well as significant blood thinners. At least there needs to be a discussion of that to discuss whether or not to go forward. So let's talk about the brow lift and whether or not that would be beneficial to you. And so I can try to help you assess yourself as well as start some thinking so that you can have an appropriate conversation with your surgeon. Like everything else, this is only a problem if it is affecting you functionally that you can't see or it is affecting your visual appearance in a way that bothers you enough to have something done and that you are healthy enough to be a candidate for this. (laughs) Have I covered all the bases? (laughs) So if your brow rests lower than your upper orbital rim or the upper eye bone, as you could say, then you may have some physical features that make you look more angry, tired, pissed, intense, aged, non-relevant, and so on. If the outside of the brows sag, well, sometimes that makes somebody look sad and again, tired as well. If it's on the medial or the central portion, that's what typically makes us look angry. And again, sometimes something that we like to address with Botox, but if it's heavy enough, that's not going to lift somebody enough to that central area. So sometimes the easiest way to see if somebody is a candidate on their own is if they place their fingers, their index and their thumb over both brows and just gently lift the brow into a pleasing position that eliminates most of the excess upper eyelid tissue, but not so high that it looks surprised because we ain't doing that for you. But in general, this might be a way to indicate whether or not you would be pleased. Now, I find that this is difficult to simulate uh, for others. Even when I'm using my own hands on a patient, it's difficult for me to simulate. It's more of a, li- it's a little bit of a trust factor for me to tell somebody whether or not I think they would be a good candidate for it. And I do try to simulate this, like I said, and then they are able to do this for themselves. It is difficult to simulate this in the way that it would appear after the actual procedure. So I want to talk about my dudes first because I see brow lifts less in men, but we do see them. But in general, our evaluation and plans are a little different. With males, when we raise an eyebrow, it is thought to feminize the face. So in males as a whole, we don't really want to feminize the face. So if somebody really needs the brow to be lifted, a lot of times on males, we might opt for more of a direct brow lift because the musculature on a male is also stronger and that tissue is often heavier. Physics would tell you you can get more of a direct pull and the incision hides quite well in the upper portion of the brow. Many men have a receding hairline and so that eliminates them from a coronal, which I'll explain in a minute, and a hairline brow lift, but they may still be candidates for an endoscopic brow lift as well. But again, in our office, we are very careful as we evaluate and make a plan and then treat males. Of course, I'm real careful because I'm just assisting. This is all off to my surgeon uh, that I work for and have for over 15 years, Dr. Glenn Walton, who just does a fabulous job 
job. So I, I think of all these procedures as wonderful because I primarily just see his work. So there are a variety of brow lifts that are out there and I'm going to try to explain them. I've already explained one to you, which is the direct brow lift that does not include the area that is between the eyebrows, which can be quite heavy as well. And so a direct brow lift can be performed, but I find out of my own personal opinion that most females especially really need a full brow lift to be overall pleased and to have the most lasting results. Now, I will tell you an endoscopic brow lift has very small incisions, which the scars are a lot smaller. They hide quite well. I've had a lot less experience with this and a small camera is inserted into the area in order to perform this procedure. And having seen results, I would tell you that there can be quite pleasing results if this is done in the hands of a surgeon who has a great deal of experience with endoscopic procedures. However, if they don't, and just because things can happen, as things begin to descend, if that person is not experienced with the aging process, you can have one area that remains kind of in a tightened appearance and then other areas may not stay as much. And I just find that when that is performed in the hands of a less experienced surgeon, sometimes it looks a little odd with aging, at least to the trained eye. So that doesn't always count. Another type of brow lift that is out there is the coronal brow lift, which really is an incision. Don't look it up on the internet, at least not until after you've had the procedure. But really the incision extends across the top of the head, for lack of a better way of explaining that, from ear to ear. And the forehead is pulled forward. Don't think about that too much. And then the muscles that are between the eye can be addressed by the surgeon. And the degree of aggressiveness of addressing this area is dependent on the evaluation and thoughts, benefit versus risk from the surgeon's perspective releasing of these muscles. If the muscles are released too aggressively in this area, there can be a depression. And again, I've worked for a gentleman that I've never seen that. I do see a benefit with this moderate treatment plan to the musculature to this area is it does cause some relaxation. If somebody was to be more aggressive, they may see a more flattened appearance to this. But again, if it's treated too aggressively, it can cause a depression or a spreading of the brow, which is just not a good look. And you can't really go backwards, which is never a situation we want to be in. Some surgeons may address the musculature to the forehead area as well. The skin and tissue is then pulled in an upward and even fashion to try to even out the brows sometimes if they are uneven and then to lift them as well. And then a portion of the tissue is removed. The skin and tissue is then closed with suture as well as temporary staples because the staples are quite frankly more friendly to the hair follicle and we all want to keep our hair and those are often removed at 10 to 14 days. That can be dependent on the feelings of the surgeon at that point. I do think that this procedure has an increased risk of some local alopecia or changes to the hair in this area, even in the gentlest of situations. It is also quite normal for somebody to have significant numbness behind the incision, but I've found that most patients are not bothered by this as long as you explain this uh, in advance. The brow lift that I find, but no one's really asking my opinion, but since it's the podcast that I'm the host of, I'm going to tell you my opinion that I find is a hairline brow lift at 
has fancier words, but I can tell you. So a hairline brow lift is basically an incision is made where the hair and the forehead come into contact in that central area and then it dives kind of backwards, begins to go posterior into the hair and then downward towards the ear. And I find several benefits to this as with physics, it is closer to the place where we are trying to pull this upward. And so I just think that you can get a more significant pull in those folks who are truly a lot lower. A huge benefit to this is that a large and high forehead that is of significance is not thought to be attractive. In fact, we think of that with aging. And so if somebody already has a medium to a high forehead, this gives a nice option that doesn't increase the size of the forehead and in fact can be brought somewhat forward in the right situation. And I've found that the scar typically does very well to this area as the tension in the front is relieved from sutures underneath in the deeper tissues and then an exterior suture is placed that is removed a week later. Each individual has to be properly assessed in advance to see which type of a brow lift may benefit them the most. In my opinion, a brow lift is not just something to be done with aging. You know, there are folks that are doing this, you know, even in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, it's really more about a repositioning of tissues, which helps people look more alert and youthful. Definitely not surprised, at least with my surgeon performing this, he's not going to overdo it, which is amazing. And no, we do not want to look surprised, but I can say in the hands of the right surgeon, they're not going to want you to do that. You might look a little uh, elevated in the first four to five, maybe up to seven days, just because there's swelling that's involved, but that should be expected, just like with any procedure that you're going to have some oddities in those first days. But I have never seen in the hands of the surgeon that I work for anybody look overdone or surprised. This upward appearance often really gives the appearance of somebody looking a little happier, even if they're not friendlier and more approachable, even if they're not. (laughs) As I discussed earlier, it can elongate the face, which can really give an appearance of a more feminine look. I've often said this, females, sometimes the aging population will start to look like, uh, I'm sorry, ladies, but it can look a little like a grumpy old man with a whole lot of makeup on. And when I'm saying that, I'm just saying it it just don't look good. So one thing I'd say to that is if you are having some uh, heavy heaviness in the brows, don't put on more makeup. That doesn't look good. It never is a good idea uh, to try to cover up something. But again, it does benefit us in that it has a more feminine appearance, really to the whole face as it elongates the whole face. This can improve the horizontal or the worry lines of the forehead and the frown lines of the vertical right as they're between the eyes. And it can improve the hooding that is to the upper brow area. Now, I will tell you, sometimes we perform a brow lift in addition to an upper blepharoplasty, but sometimes we separate this procedure is to just make sure we never remove too much tissue. And again, I've never seen that in the hands of my surgeon at least. This procedure is a surgery and it can be performed under general anesthesia where an anesthesiologist is used to put you to sleep. It is not too long of a surgery or it can be done under local anesthesia with medication given to you in advance or under sedation where you're kind of in a twilight state. Some of these options are dependent on the location of where you go and what the surgeon has available to them. Overall, I find that given the right candidate, these procedures can result in a nicely refreshed look with a very natural appearance. I hope this was helpful as an introduction to brow lifts versus blepharoplasties so that we can open those eyes up and somebody can see the window
window to your soul, if you want them to. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today of this podcast, Make Me Pretty, Tomboy Turn, Plastic Surgery PA. Please subscribe and leave reviews as this does help me continue to be able to provide more episodes in the future. Yes, it does help greatly if you tell your family, your friends, your co-workers. And for those of you who already have, I see you, I appreciate you. It takes an extra effort to do that and I really am energized by that as well. If you do share that you're listening to this podcast on your social media, please tag me because really nothing else excites me more than good folks out there encouraging each other as a team that we may all rise up together unified. Please listen out for our next episode, which will be an interview with Davina Brazelton, a PA in dermatology who has over 17 years of experience as we address the 2020-21 new diagnosis of maskne. It's really been around for a while, but it has a new term at least. So please, again, look out for that episode. And like I said, I appreciate all of your support. Until next time. Thank you.